We are surrounded by incredibly strong people. Their journeys, like us all, are full of resilience, persistence, inner strength, and an ability to gain perspective to make the best of what is thrown our way. This is People Are Amazing, the podcast. My February guest is one that has been a pioneer in changing the face of neurological diversity. Ben Sorensen, a highly intelligent, articulate and extremely engaging man who has autism. He is on the upper spectrum and is high functioning, a term he doesn't like to use, extremely cognizant of his challenges, which has given him more power to keep learning new ways to overcome them with intent. Resilience for Ben is knowing when to use the tools that can help him be the best version of his evolving self, but also acknowledging when he needs a little time out to close his eyes, listen to some music and refuel his energy levels and strength. You'll love learning about how common someone with autism or complex neurodevelopment disorders are in your workplace. Ben has spoken to many large corporate businesses on factoring in neurological diversity into their agenda. This is Ben's story. Hello, how are you? Happy hump day. <laughs> yes, I know. It's turned into a very busy day, which is great. Great. Look, let's um, let's get straight into it. I want to, again, say thank you. I really enjoyed our quick catch-up the other day, especially with autism. You were so engaging. I remember leaving that conversation feeling so energised from it. So I'm Yeah, I had, a nap, I had a nap afterwards, but yes. Well, so you <laughs> poured all your energy out on me. Oh. And you know what? Totally worth it. Totally worth it. And I think that as I get older, I learn that being engaging is uh, is is such a wonderful gift that I can give to me and also to you to have less less interactions, but more at a higher quality. And I would much rather use my energy on less people that I like, that I find really interesting or really fascinating or really smart than deal with heaps and heaps and heaps of low quality interactions. Yeah. And I think that's a really positive thing when you look at life and you go, how, how, how often do we go, oh, I've just got a whole day of brain dead people or people that don't resonate with me or don't sing my song. So, you know, it's uh, added incentive to, uh, focus your attention, not weed out those other people, but focus your attention to make sure you have more of those really awesome people like yourself. Oh, bless. I think that's um, that was a conversation I had recently with friendships, friendship groups as well. So as you get older, you kind of have less time. And so when- I love you- how you added an S to that, friendship groups, yeah. more than one. Yeah, more than more than one. Like, But yeah, you kind of start to whittle that down a little bit because you have less time, you yeah. want quality over quantity. and That's like the um, the thing that we don't talk about with that painting of the last supper is the real miracle that Jesus was in his thirties and he had more than 10 friends. Absolutely. To your point. I like that. Yeah. Totally like that. So how are you? Tell me, how's it, how's it all going? There's been so much talks in the, in the corporate space around neurological disability and neurological diversity. Look, it's great to finally be in vogue. It's, it's really, it's really good to have a brain that's fashionable at the moment. So I'm, I'm kind of okay with that. Um, I think that um, I think there's a lot of talk about it and corporates are always really, really great at buzzwords and going, oh, we need to do a heap of this. How can we do that? And then a whole bunch of people run around frantically and go, oh, okay, how can we look like we're doing that um, to meet our minimum requirements that uh, upstairs have given us? Um, 
But I think the difference with neurodiversity is I think it's more of those aha moments of going, oh, we already have some people in our organization that are neurologically diverse and we've worked with them so we can actually understand them a bit better now and understand when we're going through the recruiting process the advantages of those people rather than just the challenges. So traditional workplaces don't um, don't lend themselves to a lot of neurodiversity naturally with our Western model of you must be chained to a desk, you must do this, you must do that, I own you for the hours that you are at work. Whereas neurodiversity in the workplace, particularly um, in the ever-changing corporate model of, you know, work-life balance, flexibility and things like that tends to work really well. So having that autonomy and also being results driven uh, is very, very conducive to a neurodiverse workplace and treating people or employees rather like conscious adults where they can turn up to work and are responsible for their own role and, you know, loading them up with an appropriate amount of work, not overworking, understanding about mental health days and understanding about the sustainability of a high-pressure high corporate environment uh, tends to also do well for neurodiverse people and also neurologically typical people as well. You're, you're absolutely right. The pandemic last year has really taught so many people how people can be accountable and can be trusted to work outside of an office mm. environment. And so as we move into a bit more of an office agnostic type of world and with flexible work, you know, people are now realizing, especially in Australia, I think we are probably one of the pioneers of change, not to say that some of the Scandinavian countries haven't already embra embraced it. You know, now that we've got the work-life balance, it, it is really starting to see, well, talent can be anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. And the whole concept of let's take staff and force them into the same cookie cutter mold as everyone else, just because you know, I can't be bothered getting to know what makes them work best, even though I'm happy to pay them and I want to get the best out of them when I'm paying them. Um, you know, this is, this is, you know, it's, it's a really positive thing to see how that's forcibly changing thanks to COVID. I mean, we've had research out there for uh, quite a long time saying that, you know, fear-based management doesn't work. Yet, you still see in a lot of boardrooms fear-based management because it's ego-driven. And if we start getting managers that are actually trained managers that actually understand how to work with people and how to get the best out of people and how to give people within reason what they need to do their job properly. We'll start to see some really great productivity increases. We'll also see uh, a decrease in uh, sick days, sick leave, mental health days and things like that when we offer the flexibility to do that and managers that understand that and aren't ego-driven or fear-based. 100%. Look, again, we've gotten straight into the thick of it. <laughs> we'll go backwards a little bit. The podcast itself is really around resilience and inner strength. And it's really just tackling people who are just bloody amazing like you. So how about we oh. start from the beginning a little? So re resilience and, in, and uh, resilience is a really interesting thing when you're, when you're throwing that at a um, straight white guy. So it is part of my privilege to have lower resilience than... 
um, some of the First Nations people and some and particularly some women and a lot of other different people. But I think resilience is uh, everyone has their own story. Everyone has their own challenges. And I think it's very important to call out the fact that I am a straight white male and all of my stories are based on my uh, lived experience as a straight white male. And in no way am I discounting some of the challenges that other people have that I have consciously gone out there and tried to learn about um, because I think that understanding builds my resilience and my understanding of that uh, gives me perspective. So if I'm having a bad day, I instantly think that everybody else uh, must be having a really, really bad day because uh, they don't they don't have the same sort of uh, social privileges that I do. A man who is just not refusing to live in the world of ignorance. So that is already amazing that you're consciously making a decision to go out there and learn about other cultures and other perspectives and to give yourself a bit of a, a different way of looking at the world. Well, it's, it's, um, uh, I just hate the ignorance of privilege. And uh, there are times in my learning that I will say the wrong thing, that I will do the wrong thing, but I take them as um, uh, teachable moments. And I've got a lot more teachable moments to go. And I never preach, oh, I'm not preaching perfection. I'm preaching journey. And journey is the most amazing thing and listening to other people and understanding that there are other viewpoints than my own. There are other experiences than my own. And some people have problems that totally don't exist in my world. And that's okay. That doesn't make them fake or not, you know, or less valid. It just means that I need to take some time to learn about them so that I can fully understand and appreciate that other person. And I think my favorite line favorite line that I've come across in my reading, and I can't remember where it's from, is um, if you are free, it is your responsibility to set someone else free. So that's part of the learning and that's part of the thing. And I think I, I, I've been uh, accidentally blessed uh, by being a white guy. And I am essentially freer than most. So it is part of my responsibility to everybody else to really push for equity and equality and to be aware of those systemic systems that that do that and work with that to bring everyone else up to the same level or, or to make everybody uh, and give everyone the opportunities that uh, they should have. Ambassador right there. Ben, let's, uh, let's step back a little. Um, who okay. are you? Where did you grow up? Talk a little bit about your childhood and, and kind of how did you come to the realisation that you have autism? Okay. Uh, I'm Ben. I'm a Sagittarian. I like long walks on short piers. Um, no, I, um, I grew up in country Queensland uh, in a little, little farming town called Dabra, known for its cows and pineapples. Uh, not good to mix those two um, at all. Uh, but uh, pineapple fritters and steak kind of go together, but not while the cow's alive. Um, the great thing about growing up in a regional town is it wasn't about being, oh, you're, you know, you're disabled, you've got autism, which I didn't know I had at the time. I was just different. But in a country town, it's like, oh, you know, he, he's in the town, he's a bit different, we just got to accept it. And there was that sort of 
warmness about that. And there was so much nature in a country town that you could, you know, walk outside. There was a lot of outside stuff and outside time and farms and uh, creeks and forests and all sorts of great things like that. And I find that uh, even now uh, I have that connection with nature and animals that just really chills me out and really is lovely. So uh, having that there growing up really made such a big difference. Uh, I then moved to uh, the city or the city, comparative city, Brisbane city, uh, and ran a couple of businesses. Uh, I was, I did breakfast radio on the Sunshine Coast for a bit. I did kids TV with Channel 9. I did uh, some publishing stuff with a mate of mine. Uh, we had a stable of a couple of magazines that we used to put out. And then I made the big move to, to Melbourne, which is proper big smoke. Uh, and there's a lot more work, a lot more opportunity and a lot more things for me down here. And the transition between all of that was really huge because being, uh, as I now know, uh, autistic is very, very challenging uh, to have so many, so many life altering changes. But, uh, you know, I think the result is pretty good. And along the way, I've learned some really great hacks to understand me and understand my brain and what it needs to function properly. And I still go through burnout. I still have, um, you know, big, big burnout times when I am learning something new or I uh, miss a cue or I miss something within myself. But all of it provides me with more resilience, more awareness, and a lower chance of having a huge burnout later on. I can't wait to get into a little bit more detail around how you uh, have learned all those life hacks. But where were you when you started realizing the difference? How old were you? What was the circumstances that you were sort of surrounded well, with? Yeah, well, I always knew I was different. And um, I think if you take it back and you look at uh, Einstein, he had this great line. He said, uh, great people know their greatness before anyone else. And in a non-ego way, it's was just me going, well, I know I'm different and I knew I was different before anyone else. I didn't know what that was or what it meant or it had a medical term for it and there, I didn't know there was other people that experienced this. So I had no idea growing up and I just went, okay, well, this is what I got. So I've got to find a way to connect with the outside world. I've got to understand me because whether it's a thing or not, I need to know how I work and how I like to work because how can I interact with the world if I don't know me? So it prompted a long journey of getting to know myself. And thankfully I'm a little bit smarter than the average bear. So I didn't mind uh, all the reading, all the research and everything. And this was, you know, country Debra, we didn't have, like when I was going through primary school, we didn't have like the internet, you know, that wasn't a thing then. Um, we were still paying for STD phone calls on a landline. So I remember a that. lot of it. Yeah, I know. I know. You have a little timer by the phone going, how important is this conversation? But I spent a lot of time in the, in the library because we did it with books back in the dark ages. And, you know, it was about, a combination of creativity 
and using the information that was available to me to get to know me and how I worked and a lot of trial and error, just a lot. Did you have to go and see a doctor to get anything diagnosed? And if you did, uh, what some of the tests that were involved? I had, uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge fan of psychologists and psychiatrists. Uh, I think that as part of Australian culture, we see that you go to see a psychologist or a psychiatrist when you're broken to make you functional again. So when you're not functional, you go and see these people to make you functional. And I think the key is to change that thinking and go, a psychologist and a psychiatrist isn't about making you functional or shouldn't be about. That's only one aspect of what they can do if you see them too late. Uh, a psychologist and a psychiatrist, if used correctly, can guide you through the, uh, the, the stage of life that you're at to provide you with some really healthy tools. And the best way to learn some of these skills is not at crisis point, but when you're fine or when you feel like you're fine. How can you implement some better behavioral techniques, some better understandings, some better tools to not just survive, but thrive? So that's been my view of psychology and psychiatry and mental health the whole whole way through. Now, I've, I've struggled with mental health my whole life because it's a, a lovely comorbidity with uh, autism is anxiety and depression. But when I feel good, I still see my psychologist. When I feel bad, I still see my psychologist. And the human mind is such a fascinating thing that there's always things to work on. There are always things to to do, to be better, to understand the world in which you live better and to create some of that resilience through uh, attitude, positive habits and talking to an educated individual. So sometimes it's nice and you can get some comfort from friends. That's lovely. But uh, I very much like uh, getting actual scientific data and advice from someone who has a master's degree or more in the human condition, in psychology, in psychiatry. And I think that's, that's been the really powerful thing for me. Comfort comes from friends, uh, skills and training and knowledge uh, will come from those experts. It's, it's really great hindsight to have. And, you know, with someone who's been so enthralled into learning about yourself before going out there and being able to relate to other people, now that you've got that hindsight, what was it like back then? So this was like, you know, prehistoric days, books and libraries and all that stuff. What were some of the triggers that got your parents thinking, hmm, okay, well, maybe we'll get Ben to a psychologist? Incidentally, I don't think they did. I still don't think my mum really understands what it is properly. Uh, that doesn't mean that she doesn't love me or I had a terrible childhood or anything like that. It just means it's, uh, I think that's something that's a bit challenging. And I think for parents that have a uh, child that's a little bit different, like being a parent's a really, really tough job any day of the week. And being a parent and working or and running a household and doing all of these other things and also having time for you as a parent, that's a really hard thing to, you know, 
to balance, even with a neurologically typical kid that's totally a-okay. And then you add some uh, extra things on onto that, asking a bazillion questions and uh, having sensory issues with so many different things. So not only have you got all the, the, to run the gauntlet of having a normal human child that you're trying to keep alive, You've also got to remember that, oh, this kid doesn't like loud noises and oh, he doesn't like this and he doesn't like that. And, uh, you know, so I think overall, I think she did a really great job. And I also think that at the time and the place that I grew up, none of that was really a thing. And it was only as I got older, I worked that out myself. And that was way after school that I worked out it had a name and what it was well she's clearly done an amazing job for you to get to where you are there's no doubt about yes not the success of any parent not dead good not dead (laughs) that's it (laughs) okay so then when you found out that you'd realized it had a name it had a reactions it had certain qualities to it what happened then? So you went to see a psychologist you start, start to explore you some of the symptoms some of the triggers yep so originally the psychologist uh, that I went to went, uh, I, I can remember turning up and going, um, I think this might be a bit of a fit, this uh, whole Asperger's thing. And he's looked at me and he's gone, yeah, of course it is. And I went, sorry, what? And he went, yes, yes, it was very obvious from when you first walked in. And I went, oh, okay, well, um, Thanks for sharing that. (laughs) And he's gone, do you know what? It actually doesn't matter. Uh, High functioning is such a vile term, but we we understand what it means. So we're going to throw it out there. When you're high functioning, if you're not having any problems as such and you've worked out your world and it happens to be going okay for you, is there a benefit to giving it a name? Is there a huge benefit to going down that diagnosis path? And for uh, the, the psychologist's view was not really. If you're doing okay and that's great, you're coming to see a psychologist, that's great. Well, we can just continue. I'll know, I know that you are and I'm going to give you some tools and, and guidance. But if you're coping okay with your, your world and you're thriving and you're doing really well, then why, why upset the apple cart? Um, and I think that that was a really interesting conversation. And, that, and I think that's an individual therapist's call. And it doesn't work for all people. And see, this is the great thing about uh, autism. When you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. Everybody's different. It's a spectrum. And it's a really, really big spectrum. So I got to a stage where it was important for me to know because I was trying to do different things and couldn't work out why it was taking me longer than everyone else or why uh, some things were more energy uh, intensive than other things. And as you get older, I think your energy levels decrease. So you can't overcompensate with that natural energy. And I think that's for me when some things became a little bit more apparent. So we ended up, uh, I had an informal diagnosis from 
the psychologist at the time and uh, my psychologist said, look, we can do it formally if you want, but what do you want out of it? You know, what's the point of getting that? And I didn't do that for a little while because I didn't, there wasn't, wasn't really a reason I didn't need it. It was more an awareness and trying to work out. I've now got a Google search term so that I can look for hacks and I can look for other people that have done stuff to sort of um, speed up the learning and reduce the trial and error time in the developmental process. But in the last, uh, I think it's only been maybe two or three years, uh, time's not a huge uh, thing for me. But um, in the last few years, uh, I got a formal diagnosis. And the logic behind that was, as I age, uh, I don't know how that's going to affect my energy levels or what I may or may not need. So again, as future proofing and future planning, I thought getting a, a diagnosis now it was a smart thing to do to tick it off, get it out the way so I've got it just in case I need it. Where are you on the spectrum? Um, I, I sit as... Uh, High or so technically the uh, they give you a question. So there's a couple of things that they do. There's uh, supporting documentation from uh, therapists and a psychiatrist to do a diagnosis session. Uh, you can you also do um, there's a whole heap of other tests that you do, and there is a particular autism questionnaire, and I scored very highly on that, which was uh, you know. A t- it's funny because you go, yeah, yeah, I did the test really well. And you go, no, it's not that sort of test. It's not like you can study for it or anything. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I present differently to how I am internally. And that's one of the big things with um, autistic people and also disabled people um, to a certain extent is just because you have a good experience with me and I look normal, that doesn't mean my internal experience is the same. So that's the joy of masking. So what are you feeling inside? So I can see how you've masked it or how how you're presenting to me, but what are you feeling on the inside? um, Sometimes when I I mask, sometimes I think of it as a separation of self. Um, And I think that's a really interesting point to make. Uh, and I think the difference is, uh, and and again, I know what an what my autistic brain is like. I don't actually know what the inside of a neurotypical brain is like because that's not my lived experience. However, uh, from what I've gathered and what I've read, my the the big difference is when I mask, everything is conscious. So everything is totally conscious from start to finish. Whereas for a neurotypical person, a lot of it is intuitive or automatic or unconscious. So that's where the, a lot of the additional energy goes into in masking with other people. So you would know from looking at someone or have an idea from looking at someone what they feel like or how they are feeling external to yourself. Whereas 
that part of my brain doesn't always operate properly. So I have to remember facial expressions and facial cues. And I have to remember to look for micro expressions and I have to understand how to read micro expressions. So there's a difference between what I can do, what I have the energy to do and what I want to do because it's all conscious. There was a thing I was reading a little while back that autistic people on average are burning through two to three times, or I think it was two to three times the amount of energy that a neurologically typical person goes through in a day. So for me, as a coping strategy, uh, I go, okay, well, let's do some face-to-face time now. But I just know that in my diary, I'm just going to have to block out some quiet time afterwards to help me recharge. Headphones on, uh, eyes covered, dark room, sensory deprivation, and I'm, I'm good to go after a bit, bit of a recharge. So talking about tips and tricks and life hacks that you've had to, to learn to, to register with people's facial expressions and being conscious about it, what were some of the challenges that you've been faced with? You've had a couple of businesses. Um, do you know what? When you, can't, uh, when you can't read facial cues, every admirer is a secret admirer. So, <laughs> so that's, that's been a um, – I've been um, – uh, blindsided quite a few times, <laughs> not, o- not only with um, uh, romantic relationships, but friendships and, uh, you know, all sorts of different people because I, uh, f- you know, get very focused on the task at hand as opposed to, you know, the emotive context of a group. And understanding and reading about group dynamics is a t- is, was uh, a very difficult lesson to learn and something that I, uh, I still struggle with from time to time, particularly when I'm tired or when I get busy or um, burnt out. I was, talking to, I was talking to my psychologist the other day and uh, the concept of trauma came up. So we were talking about trauma and I go, oh, not really. I think I've got that much going on. And they, they said that it is uh, every autistic person has trauma. And the interesting thing about that is we normalize it and we mask it, but it is ongoing trauma as most disabled people have, not just neurologically, but physically as well. Um, and the, the sad part is our society how it's built does not produce an autistic person without trauma. And that's, that's the sad thing. So autism doesn't cause trauma. However, how our society is built does not enable an autistic person to be produced without trauma. So then we look at that being an issue uh, that's highlighted uh, only because of my experience with autistic people, but I'm sure that happens with other people as well. So by consciously looking at the makeup of society and how that is, how that happens and how that's produced and our concept of societal othering and our uh, uh, innate fear of different, then we look at some of the unconscious cracks that are quite big within some communities but almost unseen in a neurologically typical environment. 
that can actually bring huge societal benefit to everyone. How much faster would the human race advance if we weren't so fearful, irrationally, emotively fearful of something that is simply different than if we cognitively and logically looked at it and went, okay, cool. How can we assess this? Is this actually a threat? Is this actually something we need to worry about? Or is this something that can benefit everybody? Or does it really matter either way? How can we include you? How can we, as a society, be a whole functioning society and provide each and every one of us with a lower statistical risk of coming out of this with trauma? It's, it's interesting that you, you bring up trauma and masking because often people who have gone through trauma, you often mask because you're trying to hide your pain or hide whatever it is that you're trying to mask. So yeah, that's interesting. This is now moving into the category of how you're embracing your high functioning autistic person into a lot of your keynote speaking. So how are you taking this to the next level? Um, I think part of it is just finding boardrooms or finding organizations that are that are wanting to learn more about different things that are outside their narrow scope of what they're comfortable with or what they've already done and always done. And when we look at uh, HR and we look at the recruitment process and the selection process behind that, a particular, uh, you know, a lot of times we see this in small to medium business as well that may not have as a, as resourced HR departments, we see the unconscious bias come out in that and it's it's not sometimes it's malicious sometimes it's just ignorant and sometimes we don't even know that we're doing it because I want to work in a workplace where I get along with people and where I can have a laugh with people and I like people so unconsciously as a human what am I going to do I'm going to gravitate towards people that are just like me. And when we look at CEOs, when we look at boardrooms, when we look at things like that, uh, there's a lot of white guys there. And, you know, I, as a logical autistic guy, went, uh, I don't really understand these quota things. I think that, um, you know, it should be about skill not about, you know, gender or, you know, race or anything like that. It should be about skill. And you know what? I am 100% right. It should be about that. However, we are so far from that that it's not funny. And the intermediate step that we have between where we are now and where we need to be is forcibly creating a conscious decision to be diverse. And that's a beautiful thing, I think. So, yeah, we got the quotas are a great idea as the next step. It's not the final step, it's the next step. So that we can have all of these people that are currently in those positions of power go, oh, you know, I've got to hire that woman or I've got to hire this or that. So, all right, fair enough. And then they'll have lived experiences with different people other than themselves 
And I guarantee you that all of those people will go, do you know what? This is actually really good. I never would have thought of it that way. Or, wow, that's a really different, different opinion or a different take. Or, wow, you've got that some really great skills in that area. Or you speak five languages and you've lived in four different countries. That's amazing. And instantly, you've got this wealth of knowledge, this diverse, flexible wealth of knowledge to empower your organization. And I think that's the amazing part of it. And that's why we should be consciously looking for really switched on talented individuals that are different to who we are, work together as a cohesive team. You're absolutely speaking, I think, the right language and the, the way of the future. I think these little tiny steps where there are diversity quotas or there's a checkbox, it is slow changes, but it is change and it will happen. It's just a matter of time. So having people like you out there talking to large corporations and speaking to people is really what's going to bring these discussions out. But what kind of pearls of wisdom do you have for people who have really started to learn about their own disabilities and understanding their own neurological differences? Um, I think part of it is just finding those hacks and understanding what makes, what recharges you. So the key term to search is self-soothing and every human on the planet should have an awareness of self-soothing. It's got a name and it's like when you're hyper-stressed, it, is a way of calmly and safely interrupting that neurological pathway, that spiral that you know you're going into to relax you. And once we interrupt that thought, we weaken that neuro pathway. I mean, it may take, uh, what was it? Uh, two, 290 or 300 times or something for you to weaken that neuro pathway. But if we keep doing that, we're weakening a negative neuro pathway that we are consciously aware of and by default, strengthening and growing a positive neuropathway, which makes us feel more centered, calmer, happier. So when we look at self-soothing and people that have a disability, and even this is good for everybody, how can we find those ways to take us out of that stressful situation and reduce the negative oxidating effects of stress? How can we reduce, consciously reduce our cortisol levels which is going to help us, particularly an autistic person, help us to uh, navigate our world uh, in a safer, calmer way. So when we talk self-soothing, it could be, I really enjoy reading a book because I can just get in the zone and everything disappears and I can focus on that. It could be a playlist that I really love. It could be music that I like. It could be doing a meditation, listening to forest sounds, could be going for a walk or exercise. It could be, um, you know, essential oils or incense. It could be going for a massage. It could be eating your favorite food. It could be cooking. You know, it could be anything, any one of these things. And that that's not an, ex- an exhaustive list. It could be anything. But while you're in a relatively good space, keep trying different things. Try as many different things as you can until you find a group of things not just one, but a group of things that provide you with that self-soothing feeling so that in an acute time where you are stressed or you know that things are getting too much, that's going to help center you and bring you back from that edge 
so that you can make some better cognitive decisions. Because when we're in an acute emotional state, we have a decreased capacity to cognitively make good choices, which is why when you walk into a casino, it's sensory overload. And you're right. Yeah. Self-soothing techniques are definitely not necessarily just for those with uh, with autism. It's it's for everyone. Everything that you've just stated there is is a self-soothing mechanism for anyone, really. Yep. Yep. And even neurologically typical people have stressy days or have too much stuff on their plate or might have some really complex emotional uh, things that they're working through. You know, everyone's lived experience is different, but the one of the universal things from the data that I've read and the people that I've spoken to is that high levels of stress don't end up pretty, don't end up well anywhere. And if neurological, uh, neurologically typical people also have really good stress management techniques, they will also be better able to accept changes and things that are a bit different and possibly be a bit more patient with some challenging moments. And that all goes well for people who are neurologically different or disabled or challenged or also having a bad day. So it's kind of like this uh, jumbo ripple effect, but in a selling it in a narcissistic way. You've embraced it so well to the point where you've been able to transform the way that you're thinking, the way you're behaving, the the conscious ways that you're reading the, the micro cues on people's faces in terms of relationships. How are your personal relationships? I think I think the journey with personal relationships and close interpersonal relationships is really interesting. And I'm very fortunate uh, across my life to have some really wonderful, great loves of my life. And each and every one of those relationships, whether they ended well or badly, are... Uh, I'm very blessed that I had those those really strong, amazing women in my life because they taught me so much about uh, people, about society. They taught me so many things about myself and also about them. And those skills and the knowledge uh, that I gained from that is something that that has really helped me springboard forward to be a better person. And uh, to take all of those opportunities as learning experiences. So lots of mistakes uh, with interpersonal relationships because um, arm's length friendships are relatively easy because you've got a framework and you know what you can and can't do. Interpersonal, when it comes to masking, I had quite a lot of challenges when I was, when I was younger working that out. And there's a difference between masking and mimicking Mimicking is where you just copy and you don't really understand exactly what's happening and you're just going, oh, everyone else is kind of doing that. And that seems to be what these neurological typical people do. So I guess I'll do that to fit in. And it having unintended consequences. So as I get older, it's now more about masking than mimicking. And also now that I'm older, I'm better able to articulate myself and better able to, from those previous experiences, learn uh, what I'm what I'm looking for in a close friend or a partner or a long-term friend or a work colleague and 
I'm also able to be way more upfront to start with going, okay, well, here are some of the challenges and here are some things that are me. And I understand that that's a little bit different, but this is just who I am and how my brain works. So it enables a better position. uh, It enables the other person uh, a very open and very better position to be in rather than assuming that everyone's going to be neurologically typical or everyone's going to have the same needs or within a range of needs. Uh, so they can go, okay, well, look, I understand. And that's totally okay. Not for me. Or, okay, let's try it. Happy to spend some time with you and see, you know, or totally okay. Love it. So that's that's been a learning. And early on, it was really challenging because I thought I masking was what everyone else did. And they all did it 24-7. No, <laughs> that'll kill you. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people that do mask, but it's it's probably not not for the long yeah. term. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and uh, that that was something that I really wish I had have learned earlier, and I wish I had have embraced my neurological diversity openly earlier, yeah. so that I could uh, understand not only myself, but my interpersonal relationships better and make better decisions. Yeah. Well, that's uh, that's strength right there. So much of this discussion isn't specific to, um, to one particular issue. So much of it is really just you persevering, understanding you and then going out there and replicating with the tools that you have, with your with the support around you to, to be the better, better person that you are. So yeah, it's it's pretty cool. Thank you. I've um I feel like this has been such an educational discussion for me and to be able to ask all my frank questions. Totally. If you don't know anybody that's like that, or you are living in your bubble of people that are just like you, then you've got no reason to learn about it or no awareness or no 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 point. It's not going to be part of your world. Just like there's probably a whole heap of things out there that are not part of my world. So it doesn't mean that um, it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. It just means that it's exciting to get out of your comfort zone, learn something new about new people, and you understand more about yourself when you start to learn about different people and different types of people and different cultures and different languages and different everything. That's good for everyone. Your emotional intelligence surpasses so many other people knowing that you are very conscious about how you're responding, you're far more in tune than, uh, yeah, a lot of, a lot of people out there. Well, I, th- I think I am now because I was emotionally illiterate for quite a long time, but that, uh, that comes from having to be hyper-conscious and having to manually focus on it and learn. And I think the trick uh, that we all fall into is if it's automatic or it's intuitive, we feel like, oh, well, everyone does that. Don't have to learn about it. I'm just going to fumble my way through. And a lot of people can get away with that. I couldn't. So I had to actually sit down and learn it. And again, I'm not preaching perfection. There are times where I am most unkind. There are times where I absolutely miss all of the social cues and times where I am still totally out of my depth. And they're great learning experiences, as uncomfortable and horrible as they are, but they provide me with an ability to learn more. 
and to add to my bank of emotional knowledge and things that I need to invest energy in and be aware of. And I think if everybody invested a little bit extra energy into understanding their own emotions and not just in a, I talk to my friends about how I feel kind of way, but actually useful information and useful knowledge and useful science and data behind how we feel, how we interact with others, how we work with others. I think we'd be a little bit better off as a human race. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing all of that and, and your knowledge. And yeah, it's been amazing. I love speaking to you about this. I'm again, so engaged, so excited about everything you've got to say. That's good. That's good. I'm going to go have a nap now. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Linda, because there's not, um, not every podcast that I, I come on or not every media outlet that I talk to is, uh, has created such a safe space to honestly talk about all sorts of different things in such a welcoming and supportive way. So thanks for creating this space and creating this podcast to help people understand about not just me, but all of your other guests to understand a whole heap more about people. Thank you. That's really sweet. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, bye. Hi, I'm Max, and thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review and a rating to help others find this podcast. This episode was hosted by my mum, Linda Chrisoglu. Tune in next time for more stories on resilience and inner strength on People Are Amazing, the podcast.